0: Welcome to Access, Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In his new book, The Story of the Human Body, Evolution, Health and Disease, Daniel Lieberman, chair of the Department of Human Evolutionary Biology at uh, Harvard University, explains how the human body evolved over millions of years and shows how the increasing disparity between the adaptations in our Stone Age bodies and advancements in the modern world has led to a paradox. We are living longer, but we're increasingly prone to chronic disease. Lieberman proposes that many of these chronic illnesses persist and in some cases are intensifying because of disevolution, where only the symptoms rather than the causes of the maladies are treated. Daniel Lieberman is professor of human evolutionary biology and Edwin M. Lerner, professor of biological sciences at Harvard. He's written more than 100 articles, many appearing in journals uh, Nature and Science. He's especially well known for his research on evolution of human head and evolution of running, including barefoot running, earning him the nickname the Barefoot Professor. And he was in Utah recently for the Utah Humanities Book Festival, that visit presented by King's English Bookshop, Utah Humanities Council, and Natural History Museum of Utah. Professor Lieberman, welcome to the program.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
0: Appreciate you taking the time. Uh, I was interested to, uh, to see this quote uh, recently in Harvard Magazine, a, a presentation you gave there recently. Uh, I'll just quote this with jumping-off point. As recently as 600 generations ago, our species lived as hunter-gatherers, that means from an evolutionary standpoint, the way we live now is recent and abnormal. So recent and abnormal, you're talking about the way we live now, computers to chairs, simple fact of wearing shoes.
1: That's right. I mean, um, you know, I think it's a natural tendency for us to think our lives are normal, right? It's normal to, to, um, to, to drive in cars and to take airplane rides and to go to supermarkets and eat breakfast cereal from a box. And, you know, the list goes on. Um, and actually, from a from a from a even historical perspective, those um, those those uh, behaviors, the way we live now, is very unusual. And um, and if you uh, even compare that to um, to what even our grandparents did or our great grandparents did, to what our ancestors did, just a few hundred generations ago. Um, The the disparities become even more more astonishing, and and so although there's nothing wrong with many of the things that we do today, we shouldn't think that they're actually normal from an evolutionary perspective.
0: And of course, there's some good things, and you point this out. Infant mortality has declined. uh, Innovations like surgery, antibiotics, those are unambiguous benefits, as you say.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, let's not, uh, let's not pretend that we should, you know, just because it's, 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 it's not normal from an evolutionary perspective doesn't mean it's, it's bad. I mean, uh, I don't think most of us would actually want to go back to the Stone Age. Uh, and in fact, uh, you know, the evidence is pretty clear. If you're, if you, in terms of health, uh, there's probably no better time to be a human being than today, uh, if you're living, that is, in the developed world. So, so, you know, uh, the world is good today for most of us and for most of our bodies it's not um, this is not a doom and gloom book about how we should all you know rush out and eat paleo diets and, and throw away our chairs and and all that um, but um but we do have to understand that um, that uh, just because things are are good doesn't mean they're better for us either uh, everything has trade offs and, and to understand how and why our bodies work the way they do and understand how our bodies interact with the modern world uh, requires that you take some kind of evolutionary perspective. Otherwise, you really don't, um, you don't really, um, you don't really. It's like, the, the, the analogy I use is if you go to a football game, and in fact, when I was in Utah, I actually went to a Utah football game, but if I just walked in at the very, very end of the football game, I would know w- who won, um, and I would know what the score was, but I wouldn't know why the score was the way it was, and I wouldn't know what could have been done differently for the game to have had a different outcome. You have to watch the whole game, um, arguably even the whole season, to understand what's going on. And the same is true for the human body.
0: Yeah, you. Uh, I was reading in a, a question-and-answer session with you. Uh, the question was, is learning about evolution useful for students today? And you used the example of, of doctors. You're preparing a, a lot of your students are pre-med yes. students.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, uh, I think um, um, medicine is a field that has traditionally paid very little attention to evolution. I think most doctors and most Medical students know that evolution you know, has something to do with you know, what happened in the past, but they um, just see very little relevance to, to studying medicine today um, from an evolutionary perspective, and I think it's really wrong, um, and it's wrong for many reasons. Uh, one is that um, we haven't stopped evolving, and evolutionary processes are still going on, and there's probably no set of processes that many of us care more about than infectious diseases, which are evolving with us. Um, and without taking an evolutionary perspective to think about um, infectious diseases, um, we're going to get it wrong. Um, but, um, but in addition, um, evolution also explains why things are the way they are and give, gives a new perspective on, on how to treat bodies. For example, we often uh, think about treating uh, symptoms, um, but an evolutionary perspective helps us think about symptoms actually being adaptations. Um, a very simple example would be um, a fever, right? A fever is, uh, is what makes you miserable when you have a cold, right? Um, or the flu, and uh, you think, well, you know, how do we alleviate suffering? Well, give somebody a, you know, something to bring the fever down, bring, give them a, an ant- what's called an antipyretic, uh, you know, like an ibuprofen or, or aspirin or something like that. But in actual fact, the fever, although it does make you miserable, the fever is a, is a mechanism, an ancient mechanism that we evolved, Know, millions and millions and millions of years ago to help fight infectious diseases, and by taking um, by taking those kinds of medications, sometimes we actually uh, interfere with natural mechanisms that our body bodies have to fight a disease. Um, so so that's you know, just one of many many examples of how an evolutionary approach to medicine is very important. Cancer would be another example. Mm-hmm. So c- a cancer is you know a set of, set of mutations right that that uh, cause a cell to start acting out of control and start competing with other cells, cancer is actually not only a, a byproduct of evolution, right? It's, it's basically a result of multicellular life, but, but the way in which cancer cells actually um, 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 sometimes outcompete other cells is actually a form of selection going on in your body. And sometimes it's been argued, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not an oncologist, but it has been argued by some that the way in which we aggressively treat some cancers um, may actually create a... Con- the conditions for those cancer cells become um, to do better rather than worse. Just as when we, um, you know, use antibiotics poorly, we actually promote c- conditions for, um, you know, antibiotic-resistant um, bacteria uh, to, uh, to to proliferate. So we, we we need an evolutionary approach to medicine.
0: We're talking with Daniel Lieberman who is a Harvard professor, author of the most recent book The Story of the Human Body: Evolution, Health and Disease. We'll get to talking about the very interesting concept of disevolution, continue talking about the uh, idea of ongoing human evolution. Professor Lieberman, though I wanted to bring in uh, some comments we received on Facebook. Uh, by the way, you're welcome to comment on Facebook. Uh, we'd love to have you participate in the program that way or by email. So just go to Facebook, go to Utah Public Radio Facebook page to look for the the, uh, the post here. You'll see a picture of uh, Professor Lieberman, uh, a headshot between two skulls. I'm sure, Professor, you're familiar with this uh, <laughs> with, oh, the, right. with this picture, right. which is which is on your site at, at Harvard, and uh, showing uh, evolution of the of the skull. You you say the skull and, and and the foot, I think, primarily. Uh, but uh, you can comment on our Facebook page. You can also comment uh, via email to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. And you can call 1-800-826-1495, one 826 1495 uh, so we uh, had uh, Stephen Amott, uh, Vivian Baji and John Carmen like this post. Thank you very much. Aaron Brewer says, looks like another fascinating interview. Just put this book on hold at the library, she says. So thanks, Aaron. And here's a very interesting comment. It takes us back uh, previous to what we were even talking about. Stephen Amott says, not having read the book, it, uh, it would uh, be assumed that his premise is based on the theory of evolution, which in reality is nothing more than a theory as far as man is concerned, and yet uh, there is not one shred of evidence to prove otherwise. So what's your response, Professor?
1: <laughs> well, you know, gravity is also just a theory. A theory, don't, don't misuse the word theory. A theory is not a, a, a hypothesis. A hypothesis is when you don't really kind of know what's going on, you make a guess. A theory is an established body of evidence that, that indicates how, the, how something works. And I would say evolution is no less a, less a theory than, than gravity or relativity or, or magnetism ma- and various other, other, other scientific uh, uh, theories. Um, there, is, um, there is such abundant evidence that evolution exists and works that um, it's not really um, uh, worth an argument. If you want to argue about how evolution applies to human beings, that's fine, but it's, uh, you know, it's not science uh, to, to, uh, to, uh, you know, evolution is the only scientific explanation explanation for how and why life is the way it is, and and uh, and, and that's just that's just the way it is.
0: Do, by the way, parenthetically on this, do you do you get students coming in these days with, with this this point of view that Stephen has? Um,
1: no, um, <laughs> frankly not. I mean, after all, students uh, I, I teach I teach. Um, um, uh, you know, I'm sure, I have students who, are, who have religious backgrounds, but they're, um, you know, many many people who are religious um, have no problem with evolution. In fact, Catholic Church accepts evolution, um, um, uh, and and you know, I tend not to, to meet students who are um, opposed to science. So, uh, so no, this is not an issue I have to deal with.
0: Uh, Stephen goes on a separate topic. He says, as for disease, nearly everything that is known to disrupt the health of man today is brought on and is wholly related to bad nutrition. Man is fully capable of curing himself, but pills and wrong thinking will not do it. Your response.
1: Well, you know, nutrition is an important component of disease, but it's only one of many. Um, You know, bad nutrition doesn't cause smallpox. Um, Bad nutrition doesn't cause... um, um, many musculoskeletal diseases uh, it's much more complicated than that I I recommend uh, uh, reading the book perhaps uh, that might
0: uh, that might the, be useful the, there you go the, the book is uh, the story of the human body Aaron Brewer's already got it uh, on reserve at the library so um, you say in your introduction one of the valuable lessons of, of knowing the story of human evolution is that we are not an inevitable species
1: that's right I mean um, when you look at what happened in our evolutionary history, um, it, there were many rolls of the dice, so to speak, um, that uh, that um, you know we didn't have to be the way we are. And in fact, in, in previous um, times, there were many different species of humans uh, or human ancestors living, and uh, we just happened to be the ones that 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 that, uh, that won out. Um, in fact, it's very we're actually probably the only time in. Living in the only time now that uh, actually one species of human is ex- is extant, but if we had visited the Earth 50,000 years ago, you would have met Neanderthals in Europe and Denisovans in Asia, and you know could come maybe even the hobbits in Indonesia. Um, so, um, so uh, we're not the only species uh, um, of in our in our part of the fa- family tree. Uh, it just so happens that we um, we had some uh, we just we we. You know, we're here and they're not. Um, but um, it could have been, you know, uh, this, this book could have been written by, a, say, a Neanderthal uh, had, had history gone a little bit differently. After all, Neanderthals had brains as large as ours. Mm. Uh,
0: you have uh, been quoted as saying that you regret that for uh, much of your career as a professor of human evolutionary biology, you taught the old line that human biology hardly changed since the Ice Age. Uh, I wonder if you talk about that, that ongoing human evolution.
1: Yeah, well, you know... Um, Homo sapiens, our species, evolved sometime between, say, 200 and maybe 300,000 years ago. And um, I used to think, well, you know, my job was to get, get, teach, the, teach the students what happened up till our species evolved. And then it's, you know, the job of archaeologists and historians uh, to, to tell, tell the story of what, what happened more recently. Um, but, um, um, but actually, the more one thinks about it, the more one realizes that that's actually a limited view because, of course, a lot has happened since we evolved. I mean, we haven't created new species, but, but, but of course there's been lots of selection. For example, uh, I, had, uh, I had milk for, in my cereal for breakfast, um, and the, my ability to, to digest that milk as an adult is a result of a mutation that evolved uh, fairly recently after the origins of, of domestication, which uh, enabled uh, people in certain populations uh, to uh, continue to di- digest milk sugar as an adult. That's called lactase persistence. Lactase is the enzyme that it breaks down lactose, which is the sugar in milk. And, and you know, my metabolism has changed. My immune system is, is different from, from uh, the immune system of our great-great-great-great-grandparents from a, you know, a few hundred generations ago. Lots of things are changing, and in fact, things are still changing because there's also more than one kind of evolution. In addition to, to natural selection, there's also what we call cultural evolution. Culture has also evolved. We transmit information from... Not just from parent to offspring, but from person to person. Right? This is a an example of cultural evolution or cultural exchange going on right now as we as we converse, and and you know that cultures change over time. You know, we do different things today than we did um, a generation ago, ten years ago, hundreds of years ago, etc. Partly because some ideas are better, some ideas are worse. worse uh, um, fashions change. All kinds of things change, and so cultural evolution has also transformed our world and in fact it's doing so more rapidly and more powerfully than the natural selection right now such as for example all the sugar that i'm able to eat now and all the, all the all the conveniences that are available to me those are changing my body and so if you really want to understand how and why our bodies are the way they are and which is uh, which is i think what many of us are interested in uh, you really need to think about what's happened uh, since we evolved and, and uh... and that's the industrial revolution agricultural revolution all those shifts are, are are important and still have consequences, major consequences for, for us today.
0: And I think one of your main points is it it will pay off for us individually and collectively if we think about these things, you know, to we go forward not just living life, but think about uh, why we're becoming the way we're becoming.
1: I don't think we can actually afford not to think about it this way. this think about the current debate we're having about health care in the United States, right? We're, 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 we're arguing passionately about how to pay for it and how to regulate it and, you know, whether to require people to have insurance to and the other, but um, what we're not really arguing about right now is what to do about making people healthy in the first place. Um, how do we prevent people from getting ill? You know, 70 percent of the diseases that people get are estimated to be preventable, 70 percent. So, for example, the most common cause of death in the United States is heart disease and heart disease that doesn't have to exist people shouldn't have, you know if you if you if you eat the right diet and exercise and I mean you know, there's some genetic basis but those, most of that's a result of most of the diseases are a result of interactions between our genes and our environment but to a large extent you know living living a healthy lifestyle helps you prevent uh, heart disease uh, to a large extent if not if not almost completely um, why aren't we doing more to think about that? And, and the way to, and part of that is to understand <clears throat> how and why our bodies evolved to be the way they are, and understand what our adaptations are, and what we are really adapted to eat, and how we, what we're maladapted to eat and, and exercise. And but part of it also is to understand this cultural evolutionary dynamic by which, for example, when we get ill, we then treat the symptoms of those diseases, and then we keep a, kind of a vicious circle going in which we we permit. Um, Permit the disease to become um, even more prevalent, or, or remain extremely prevalent, or sometimes even more severe. So we need to understand that cultural dynamic that interacts with our bodies um, if we're going to um, if we're going to do better. Um, and uh, and so I think uh, evolution and evolutionary perspective is really critical to the way we should think about uh, this problem as a whole, rather than um, rather than focus on uh, simply alleviating systems or sim- symptoms or or just figure out how to pay for all this illness in the first place.
0: You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Daniel Lieberman, chair of the Department of Human Evolutionary Biology at Harvard University. His new book is The Story of the Human Body, Evolution, Health, and Disease. Uh, He was in Utah recently for the Utah Humanities Book Festival. Uh, And we're talking about this idea, this increasing disparity between the adaptations of our Stone Age bodies and advancements in the modern world. It's led to a paradox. We're living longer, but we're increasingly prone to chronic disease. Professor Lieberman has uh, some prescriptions for us, so to speak. We'll get into that, some solutions, and uh, talk a little bit more about uh, how we evolved and what that means for us uh, today. Uh, Says we're not an inevitable species, that's one valuable lesson. Um, and as recently as 600 generations ago, our species lived as hunter-gatherers. And so the simple fact of wearing shoes, for example, and other uh, practices we do now, the way we live today, is recent and abnormal. It's not all bad, of course, but uh, he says we could be doing a lot better. Uh, We're going to talk a lot more about this. Uh, In fact, we'll get into talking about uh, Professor Lieberman's study of running. Very fascinating including, and I'm itching to talk about this, Professor, uh, pigs on treadmills. Uh, you've, you've got a good job. Um, we'll talk about that and have some more comments from you. We have a comment, uh, question from Charles Asherist on our Facebook page. By the way, you can uh, join the conversation via Facebook, Utah Public Radio Facebook page. You can join us at upraccess at gmail.com, access at gmail.com. Or you can call us at 1-800-826-1495. We'd love to have your comment. 1-800-826-1495. More following the break. Checking out the U.S. Patent Office with its endless supply of amazing inventions.
1: I got into this black hole of patents looking at the ways in which your fellow citizens have been inventing climate solutions in their backyards.
2: American's creative and sometimes wacky fixes for global warming. I'm Steve Kerwood and that's next time on Living on Earth from PRI.
1: Coming up next, today at 10 o'clock. And programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at Three Hundred South and Three Hundred West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until three. Introducing Pumpernickel Rye and Pandemie.
0: Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Daniel Lieberman. He is chair of the Department of Human Evolutionary Biology at Harvard University. His new book is The Story of the Human Body, Evolution, Health, and Disease. Professor Lieberman was recently in Utah for the Utah Humanities Book Festival. And uh, this book is an uh, explanation of how the human body evolved over millions of years It shows how the increasing disparity between the adaptations of our Stone Age bodies and advancements in the modern world has led to a paradox. We're living longer, but we're increasingly prone to chronic disease. And Professor Lieberman proposes that many of these chronic diseases persist because of disevolution, where only the symptoms rather than the causes of maladies are treated. Professor Lieberman, interestingly, uh, has been published, of course, uh, in many places, including Nature and Science. He's also known as the Barefoot Professor. That's what I want to get into next, uh, Professor. I was reading an interview with you, uh, and uh, you said you had a breakthrough in in one case. As a colleague came in, um, while you were studying pigs running on treadmills, and I backed up. I thought, wait a minute, <laughs> pigs on treadmills? Uh, so I got to learn about this. You you study well, pigs running a treadmill? The uh, colleague who's colleague who's a professor in Utah.
1: So um, I was uh, doing a experiment um, as a graduate student, I believe, or maybe I it was, it was. Certainly, I was a student, and um, we were for various complicated reasons running uh, pigs on treadmills to study locomotion and the effects of loading on bones, and and um, and uh, it's rather you know. Believe me, um, after a few minutes, it gets rather dull to watch a pig run on a treadmill.
0: <laughs> Why pigs, by the way?
1: Well, we were using a um, inbred breed of swine that are um, uh, have low genetic variation between individuals, and they're also micro swine, so they're not too big. And because we want to, u- we wanted to use animals that were large enough uh, that um, that their bones behaved sort of in the way that human bones behave. You know, mice mice are often used in experiments, but but, um, but uh, size has a big effect on how bones function. and So very small animals are not always useful. So we're, we were using pigs for various complex reasons, and, and I was bored out of my mind, because you can't, you can't just turn the treadmill on and go out of the room. You have to be there all the time just in case something goes wrong as this pig was running away. And um, um, a colleague, it was a guy named uh, Dennis Bramble, who's a professor at Utah, wonderful, wonderful man, uh, came in the room and kind of was watching the scene with some degree of amusement and probably holding his nose because it's not the nicest smell. <laughs> and, um, and they pointed out that the pig couldn't hold its head still. And it's funny, I'd been watching this pig for ages and hadn't really noticed the fact that pigs, when they run on a treadmill at least, um, have really floppy heads, just kind of ungainly. Whereas if you watch most um, quadrupeds, you know, dogs, horses, cheetah, things like that, when they run, they keep their heads stock still. And um, that led to a really interesting discussion about what keeps animals' heads still, and how, um, and and what most animals do is they they have necks that stick out of their, out of their their uh, their thorax sort of horizontally, like it's called cantilevered, right? So they can flex and extend their necks and keep their heads still. But we can't do that because we're like pogo sticks. And so the question is, why can't this poor little fig do that? And that led to a discussion of adaptations that are present in humans that are not present. In, um, in, uh, in pigs and, uh, for that matter, are not present in our ape cousins, like chimpanzees or gorillas, called the nuchal ligament. And so we ended up working on this, this, this feature and showing how humans essentially have evolved special features for head stabilization that are important for running, which led to uh, some research on the evolution of human running. And so uh, Dennis Bramble and I published a paper in Nature in 2004, titled Born to Run, in which we made the case that humans evolved to run around 2 million years ago. Uh, in order to hunt, uh, which is when we, when we started hunting.
0: Uh, That's very interesting. And uh, through part of this book, you talk about, uh, you organize things about, uh, around how we have evolved to take in and expend energy. Mm. One, one big advance is that we became bipeds.
1: Yeah, well, well biped, bipedalism was sort of a, probably a solution to a problem that was caused by, by the fact that we, we probably evolved from animals that were very expensive, uh, in terms of locomotion. So chimpanzees, when they walk, they spend about four times more energy per unit mass per unit distance than, uh, than most animals. So when a chimpanzee walks, you know, a kilometer or a mile, you know, it's spending four times more energy than it costs, say, a dog to walk a kilometer or a mile. That's very expensive. And so our ancestors were probably living in very, you know, were, were dependent on fruit. And in a time when forests were, were changing in Africa, uh, environment was shifting and, and fruit started becoming more dispersed and maybe this is a hypothesis, we don't know if this is the answer. But one hypothesis is that um, that um, as fruit became more di- di- dispersed and you had to travel longer and longer distances, you know, that very high cost of walking from one fruiting tree to another was a big problem. Chimpanzees only walk about two kilometers a day. So if you had to go 10 kilometers a day, really being really, really costly might have been a real problem and that might have been why we got selected to, uh, our ancestors got selected to get on two feet and become much more efficient, because at that point they were constrained from being sort of normal four-legged quadrupeds. And then, so maybe we evolved initially to walk um, bipedally in order to save energy, and then later on, um, but the problem with that, of course, is that as soon as you become a biped, you become slow, because you can only use two legs to push yourself forward as opposed to four. So so humans are about half as fast as... As other animals are size, so as soon as we became slow, that that was that was a that was a problem, and so maybe that led for later on. We we argue for selection not for being fast at running, but being for really efficient at running really long distances, especially in the heat. And this gives us the ability to to run down prey.
0: Yeah, that, that's very interesting. So uh, the, the theory is that at that point. As we evolved to, and I guess we, we still have the ability to run long distances, obviously, run marathons.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, right now, um, <coughs> there's a you know, frenzy of people trying to get into the Boston Marathon, for example, or most major marathons are, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's hard to get in, right? Uh, because so many people want to do them. and There's so many people out there running marathons. I mean, When I was in Utah, you know, there was a big running community out there. And, and you know, our, our ability to run really long distances is not a fluke. We actually have all kinds of really neat adaptations in our bodies that make us really good at it. And, um, and those adaptations, it seems, appeared around 2 million years ago. And Some of them are you know, parts of our bodies. We have short toes and long heels and big butts and, you know, have balancing systems in our heads and all kinds of neat features in our bodies, which make us extraordinary long-distance runners.
0: Uh, and so uh, uh, our ancestors, you're saying, would just run and run and run, and, and, and their, their prey uh, couldn't run anymore. They'd, they'd overheat.
1: Exactly. So, so, um, so, we cool by sweating. Now, this is actually, uh, this idea really was first actually proposed by a professor in Utah, a guy named Dave, David Carrier, who's at the University of Utah, but, but we cool by sweating, right? We just basically secrete liquid all over our body, and that liquid ev- evaporates, and that, that cools the skin, which then cools the blood below. But most animals cool by panting, primarily by panting. And panting um, is not as efficient as sweating. And also, you can't pant while you gallop. So if you can, make it, if you can chase an animal um, at a speed that makes it gallop, which most of us can, um, and you do that in a hot day for a long time, you know, 15 minutes um, nonstop, uh, that animal will overheat will get hyperthermia. In fact, there's a really neat article on the BBC website just a few days ago about a bunch of guys in Kenya who were sick of these two cheetah that were eating their goats. So they waited in the middle of the day. You can get on the BBC website, the Africa section, and see it right now. But you know, they got, in the middle of the day, they, they, they just chased the cheetah. <clears throat> and um, the cheetah, after about, you know, about, I think it was about uh, six kilometers, <laughs> so about four miles, just lay down. Right? And and they said that because the cheetah were tired, but we actually know because there were very famous experiments done, actually here at Harvard, that cheetahs stop running as soon as their body temperature hits 41 degrees Celsius. They just stop because they're about to die. <clears throat> so what these guys did was they basically chased the cheetah until they overheated, and then they were able to tie the cheetah up and give them to the Kenya Wildlife Service. Now, now this may seem like a crazy way to, to run after a cheetah today, but imagine two million years ago and you're hunting, right? and you don't have any serious weapons. The bow and arrow was invented less than 100,000 years ago. Uh, hunting dogs were you know, domesticated less than 30,000 years ago. Um, uh, even putting a sharpened stone on the end of a stick was invented less than three or 500,000 years ago. So 2 million years ago, when our ancestors were hunting, and we know they were because we have lots of evidence that they were at archaeological sites, how did they do, do it without, without, without running, right? without doing this kind of persistence hunting? So, so it's, a, it's a hypothesis explain the origins of all those features that we have that enable us to be really good runners um, and so far uh, it's the best hypothesis out there we can't think of any other explanation
0: I just went to the site. I, I just googled uh, BBC and cheetah there's a there's a picture of the cheetah he's he's captured he's, he's t- yeah he's tied up
1: I mean the cheetahs can run um, um, I think about three times faster than a human being
0: so they just outlasted him
1: but but they can't run for very long
0: hmm Interesting. Uh, Just parenthetically, I want to bring it forward to uh, our health today, and there's very very direct connections. Uh, But uh, I'm sure you've told this a lot, but I wonder if you tell it for us uh, how you got onto barefoot running.
1: (laughs) Well, I got interested in barefoot running because I'm interested in the evolution of running. And, of course, um, if humans ran for millions of years, um, they must have run barefoot. So we thought, thought, well, let's look at how people who don't wear shoes run. And uh, when we, dis- what we discovered was that um, that um, if you um, if you're barefoot, you basically it forces you to run in a more light and gentle way. And we worked out the biomechanics, which are kind of complicated and not worth going into. But the the, the the bottom line is that if you're wearing a shoe, you can kind of crash into the ground. And sometimes you, when you hear runners or if you run yourself, you may you may hear a lot of sound as you hit the ground. We call those folks thumpers, right? But there are some people who run by you, and they're often very good runners. They just got, they'll They'll zoom by you, and they're making no sound. And that's because they're running in, in essentially a collision-free way. They're, 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 uh, they're running uh, differently, and we think that, um, that without a shoe, it kind of forces you to run in a slightly different way or often encourages you to run in a different way. And uh, that's, that may be, um, may be advantageous. Uh, so, um, so, yes, we can learn a lot about everything from studying evolution uh, or taking an evolutionary perspective, and, and it's just, even a simple thing as just how you run uh, could be one of those.
0: Yeah, you've picked this up. I think you run barefoot, at least sometimes.
1: I do, yeah, sometimes. I mean, not all the time. It, certainly not this morning. It's like uh, 20 degrees out here uh, this morning. I was very happily wearing very thick socks this morning. But when the weather's nice, um, I will often run barefoot. I've learned that it's, it's nothing to be afraid of. Just as um, you know, we're, we're out of touch with our bodies today, I think, many of us. We don't really um, uh, understand, actually, just how, what a pleasure it is to run barefoot. I mean, you have to develop some calluses. You can't just suddenly become a barefoot runner overnight, and you have to uh, develop strength in your foot and your calf muscles. You can't just suddenly throw out your shoes and run this way and expect it to solve all your problems. It won't. In fact, it'll just cause you problems. But if you put some time and effort into it, and you do it properly and carefully and thoughtfully and cautiously, um, it can be a source of a lot of fun, just like walking barefoot on the beach is
0: fun. So we've been talking about uh, how humans evolved to to use energy more more efficiently, and it involves some of these advantages. If we bring it forward to today. Um, so humans evolved taste for energy-rich foods, right? And so that Always used did we ever <laughs> used to give us a competitive advantage. No longer, though.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, for most of you know, for most of our evolutionary history, it was hard to get enough energy, right? Most hunter-gatherers are hungry, right? They're, they're, they don't have enough food, or they have barely enough food, and they have to work reasonably hard to get it. They don't have to work, you know, um, you know, you know 10 hours a day to get their food, but they have to, they have to work pretty hard every single day to get, get the food to feed themselves and their family. And under those circumstances, um, it's really adaptive to crave foods that are the most energy-rich. We love sugary things because in the past, sugary, sweet things, um, were very rare. Most of the foods that our ancestors, you know, wild fruits, for example, are rarely sweeter than a carrot. Uh, hunter-gatherers do love honey, but they don't get that much of it. So, so you know, a sweet tooth was a good thing. Um, loving fat was a very good thing. And now we're in this bizarre situation that's only occurred really extremely recently, uh, where we actually have more sugar than we know what to do with. We pay money to have people not put sugar in our foods, right? It costs extra for sugar-free stuff, um, which is kind of paradoxical if you think about it. And we, we, um, we don't even know what to do with all the fat that we produce. And as the, the result is that we, we, um, we, we've, we've evolved all sorts of adaptations to add on weight, which we can use for times of, of, of scarcity. But we no longer have times of scarcity, and we never evolved adaptations to lose weight because that was never an issue, Right. So um, you know, people in the past never went on diets. That was just not not a not a not a problem. And so uh, we, we we have all kinds of aptitudes to keep that weight on and very few to, to lose it and so we're we're in trouble now.
0: Uh, this is an excellent place to uh, bring in Charles Asher's comment. He or uh, he, er, question on our Facebook site. By the way, we're talking with uh, Professor Daniel Lieberman. The book is The Story of the Human Body, Evolution, Health, and Disease. Daniel Lieberman is a Harvard professor. He was in Utah recently for the Utah Humanities uh, Book Festival. Uh, we're talking about uh, human evolution and uh, how understanding that, uh, how it shaped our bodies today can help us. We'll get into a little later some uh, prescriptions, some... Uh, maybe some policy implications, what we can do, at least individually. Um, and you can find uh, a uh, interesting picture of Professor run his head between two skulls, uh, on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page, and you can comment there. A couple more people have liked our post, Charles Ashurst and Tamara Hamblin-Ratita. Thank you for that. Here's what Charles says. Is modern medicine, for all its many benefits, an evolutionary train wreck in progress?
1: Interesting question. I don't think so. Um, I mean— um, you know, doctors are paid to help us when we're sick, and, um, um, and we need them, um, and that's probably been always the case. Um, I think what I think that the, the big concern I have, and many other folks have, including most people who I know who are doctors, is that you know our medical system is just not really set up for prevention, um, um, and um, because it's not how we, we approach the problem, and um, and we're we're just spending too little attention on prevention, and. Um, I think that's the, that's the big concern. I mean, you know, when once a kid, for example, becomes overweight as a child, you know, that's, that's, a, that's kind of like a lifelong battle that person will have to face with many, many consequences that result from, from being overweight. Being physically inactive when you're young means that you don't build as strong a skeleton. It makes you much more prone to osteoporosis when you're an old, an old person. There are many, many examples by which we, um, we just are not... Making the hard decisions uh, necessary to help ourselves, help each other um, grow and develop healthy bodies, and the end result is that we get sick, and then we have to go to modern medicine to, to help us mitigate those symptoms or cope, or or, or. And so, uh, I think the problem is not so much medicine. I think the problem is really a political problem. You know, what are we going to do about all the sugar in our environment and the physical inactivity in our schools? Um, so I, I would, I would, I would say that doctors are struggling, most of them, earnestly and hard to do what they can in a system that is um, that's already, um, um, you know, and has many benefits. You know, if I have appendicitis, I'm going to rush to the hospital, believe me. I'm sure I'll be well taken care of. Um, but, but but also has some, some, some challenges, and those challenges are not really, I think, the fault of medicine. I think the challenges are really more a
0: political problem. We'll talk more about this uh, following a break. Uh, The book is The Story of the Human Body, Evolution, Health, and Disease. Daniel Lieberman is chair of the Department of Human Evolutionary Biology at Harvard University. We'll talk a little bit more about this idea of dis-evolution and uh, get into talking about uh, what Professor Lieberman uh, would suggest. We have a mismatch between our our Stone Age bodies and the way we live today. Um, And uh, so we're living longer, but we have more chronic disease. What can we do about it? We'll uh, ask Professor Lieberman that when we come back. And we'd love to have your comments and questions. Uh, You can join us on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. You can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com. Or you can call us at 1-800-826-1495 if you'd like to join the program. Uh, About 10 minutes left. Uh, More following the break. This is Lloyd Berenson, Director of the Bear River Health Department, In Cache Valley, air pollution comes from two main sources, mobile sources and area sources. Mobile sources are cars, trucks, and other automobiles. They release pollutants as they operate and we can minimize the pollutants by driving less and keeping our cars well maintained. Area sources include wood-burning stoves, industries that use solvents, and char broiling restaurants. We can minimize pollutants from these sources by maintaining industry and state standards for businesses, and by not using wood-burning stoves during no-burn days. By minimizing our pollutants, we can help improve our air and keep Utah a great place to live.
2: The Bear River Health Department provided this content in response to Utah Public Radio listener questions about air pollution and health for our Community Engagement Reporting Project. To join our Public Insight Network and have a say in what we report, go to upr.org and click on Become a Source.
0: Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest today is Professor Daniel Lieberman from Harvard University. He's written a new book, The Story of the Human Body, Evolution, Health, and Disease. He says, as recently as 600 generations ago, our species lived as hunter-gatherers. That means from an evolutionary standpoint, the way we live now, from computers to chairs, the simple fact of wearing shoes is recent and abnormal. In some cases, that, of course, is not a problem. We have a surgery, antibiotics, and uh, infant mortality has decreased. At the same time, he says we could be doing a lot better, and it's important to understand the evolutionary past to live a healthy lifestyle now. You're welcome to join this conversation we have about uh, nine minutes left uh, in, in the program today. Uh, the way you do that is uh, go to our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. You can comment there. You can comment uh, or ask a question uh, via email at access at gmail.com, or you can call us at 1-800-826-1495. Uh, Professor Lieberman, I, I'm sure you get this question a lot. Uh, paleo lifestyle, paleo diet has been all the rage. Uh, do you advocate that?
1: Um Parts of it, I think that there's, there's, you know, I think I, 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 uh, I, uh, I laud the the paleo diet movement uh, for for taking an evolutionary approach, but I don't agree with everything they say. I mean, I think uh, what's really good about the paleo diet approach is that it, it's, a, it's a low carb diet, and I think uh, you know the evidence is pretty clear that, that um, cutting down on simple carbohydrates, especially sugars, uh, is really important. But there, you know, there are other things about the paleo diet. I think are a little bit questionable, partly because some of the assumptions they make uh, don't make a lot of sense to me. I mean, just because our ancestors, for example, didn't eat milk as adults doesn't mean that we shouldn't. After all, my ancestors evolved adaptations to let me eat milk. And um, we shouldn't also assume that natural selection uh, and evolution evolved to make us healthy. After all, what evolution really cares about is how many offspring individuals had. So just because cavemen or Whatever vision you have of the ancestral past um, um, uh, did something. It doesn't mean that they did it for their health. Um, everything has trade-offs, right? Every time you do something, you don't do something else. There are costs and benefits associated with everything, and, um, and I think we need to be really thoughtful about what those costs and benefits are. So, you know, I think most diets, uh, you know, most nutritionists, most experts agree that, you know, certainly. Um, there are aspects of the paleo diet that make a lot of sense. Cutting down on sugars, cutting down on simple carbohydrates makes a lot of sense. You know, don't be so scared of, of fats. I think we've over-demonized certain fats sometimes. Um, but, you know, we also have to be thoughtful and careful and, and, um, um, and considerate of, of all the variations. There are lots of people out there eating, for example, Mediterranean diets, uh, which certainly wouldn't conform to the paleo diet, or vegetarians, for example, or vegans, and they're doing pretty well, too. Uh, so... Um, when, I think we need to be. Um, I think we need to be really open-minded.
0: We do have a caller, Justin, in Hyde Park. Justin, glad you called. Go ahead with your question, or comment.
2: Yes, I, I'm on my cell phone. I apologize. I hope you can hear me okay.
0: Yeah, we can hear you fine. Yeah.
2: Um, I was wondering uh, if there's been any uh, any work done on uh, in the comparing of of, of cultural uh, diets and perhaps maybe I don't want, maybe more adaptation within a, a generation or two. Uh, my wife, uh, for example, my wife is from Mexico, and she grew up on a, how to say, a very, not, maybe maybe we could call it a more Neolithic diet, very very traditional Aztec diet, mm. um, with lots of you know lots of wild things that grew in her mountains, and then she came to the United States, and everything changed in her, you know, ever she's had health problems ever since. <laughs> But I was just curious if there's been anything uh, studied within a short time frame like, like that, um, the differences, or is it just simply a matter of our diet
1: in the United States has more refined sugars and, and more refined things, if it's as simple as that? Um, well, but yeah, it's a great comment. And the, the story that you tell is one that's just uh, repeated over and over and over again for all kinds of immigrant populations. It's occurring all around the world as diets are shifting. Uh, you know, around the world, many, many cultures evolved, uh, through cultural evolution, all kinds of great ways to eat um, relatively healthy diets, you know, maximization of corn in the new world and, and uh, you know, uh, various other kinds of treatments of food in the old world and, and c- combining different kinds of, uh, you know, rice and beans and the list is very long. And, and we're losing a lot of those traditions today as we transition to processed food and, and um, And the result is more and more people are getting um, sick from the food that they eat. And um, so there's no one ideal diet out there. There are many really good diets that have traditional diets that have evolved over countless generations. And now we're just throwing a lot of that away, and we're paying a huge price for it. So I think um, the point that you make is is a very good one.
0: Thanks for that, Justin. Thank you very much. We appreciate that comment. Um, uh, Justin called 1-800-826-1495. We have about five minutes left. We could uh, definitely fit your call in or your comment to our Utah Public Radio Facebook page, or you can uh, email us at upraxis at gmail.com. Uh, Professor Lieberman, uh, I wonder if you could recommend uh, practices, policies, one that stood out to me and something I was reading. You believe in giving children the logic behind health advice.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I think people need to understand how and why their bodies work. Um, you know, just telling somebody, you know, don't eat sugar, uh, is not enough. I think you, know, you need to. I think our kids need to understand. You know, what do you do when you eat sugar? I think most of us don't know, for example, how our liver and how our pancreas and you know functions when we eat sugar and why it is that that you know a, uh, you know a sugar bomb, you know, um, uh, or just a piece of white bread. You know, of course, it's not a big deal when you have it, but. um If you keep doing it over and over again, how it overloads our livers and makes our livers fat, and how it how it how it turns um, you know makes our taxes our pancreas and gives us type two diabetes. We also need to understand what does our bodies do when we exercise. I mean, I think if there's any one simple prescription to help improve people's health, it's it's more physical activity. I mean, we physical activity doesn't uh, necessarily cause you to lose weight easily, um, but there's no question that physical activity has many many benefits. Um, apart from, from uh, weight or independent of its effects on weight. And it, well, among other things, it changes how your body copes with or deals with um, the energy from the food that you eat. And so <clears throat> we, we need to, I think people need more information about, about how their bodies work so that they can make reliable, informed decisions. And very often we just don't, we don't teach each other that and we don't provide the information uh, in ways that people can, uh, can understand it. I think the other thing we need to do understand is that, you know, we didn't evolve to make the kinds of choices that people have to make today. You know, escalators. I mean, it's, it's human instinct to take an escalator whenever you can, but it's not good for you, necessarily. Uh, it's, it's, you know, if you put a piece of cake and an apple in front of me, there's no question I'm going to go for the cake. It's, it's instinct, right? We, we didn't evolve to have to make those kinds of choices uh, that we have to make today. And it's unfair to expect people to have to exercise that kind of control. I certainly can't so why should most kids be able to do that? We need to help each other help themselves in a way that's respectful of people's rights, but also um, helps them, um, you know, make the decisions that they would rationally make uh, if they could.
0: Let's uh, let's put a, a, one more call in. Uh, we'll, we'll ask uh, Christina to be brief, and the professor as well. We just have a couple of minutes left. Christina and Moab, glad you called. Go ahead.
1: Hi. I was wondering if mental afflictions like anxiety or depression, do you have any kind of link to mismatched diseases that you're talking about? Great question. The answer is unquestionably yes. There's lots of evidence that, um, that anxiety, depression, ADHD, a lot of, a lot of uh, mental health issues uh, are related not just to diet but also to exercise. And in fact, um, there are randomized control studies, for example, which show that there's actually no pill you can buy that's as effective as, uh, as regular exercise to, for example, treat uh, depression. So, um, uh, and very often, you know, only about a third of doctors, for example, when they, uh, according to surveys, ask their patients uh, how much physical activity they're getting. And um, we, when you we remove physical activity from somebody's life, you're creating a, a wide set of mismatched diseases. There's no question. And among them include uh, mental health issues. Um, we're, we're, and we, we don't realize it. We don't think about it. It's off our radar screen. But it's something we really need to pay attention to.
0: Thanks, Christina. Appreciate that. Thank you. Um, and we'll end it there. Uh, Daniel Lieberman is a Harvard professor, chair of the Department of Human Evolutionary Biology at uh, Harvard University. Uh, The book available now, The Story of the Human Body, Evolution, Health, and Disease. He was in Utah recently for the Utah Humanities Book Festival. Professor Lieberman, thank you so much.
1: Oh, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for everybody who uh, responded to the program. You can keep those comments coming on our Facebook page and on our website, upr.org, as well. For producers Katie Swain and Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks so much for listening today.
2: Utah writer
1: Gina Wickwar.
3: Imagine, it's a quiet Sunday. It's mid-morning and you've just come home from church or you've been lazing around the house reading the paper over your second cup of coffee. Suddenly, klaxons and sirens shatter the air, and life as you know it will change forever in the next few seconds. That's what happened this weekend in the small town of Washington, Illinois, when one of several violent tornadoes screamed through the town, leaving a half-mile swath of destruction and one person dead. The before and after pictures shown on cable news pretty well tell the whole story. Complete devastation, all within mere minutes. When I was little, we lived in Hoopston, Illinois, about 100 miles directly south of Chicago and almost 100 miles due east from the town of Washington. Like Washington, Hoopston was a small farming community, and we lived there because there was a housing shortage in Rantoul, near Chanute Field, where my father was stationed after our return from Occupied Japan. It was about this same time of year, too, a little after Halloween, when a tornado struck Hoopston and our four-story apartment house was in its path. My parents, and I and my baby sister huddled in our bathroom and, like everyone says, the tornado sounded like the roar of a hundred freight trains. The winds wailing and screeching were horrifying, as was the pounding of the wind-driven rain. By the standards of what hit central Illinois this weekend, the tornado 63 years ago was a piker, probably an F1. Still, I remember well that it caused considerable damage. We lived on the basement floor of the apartment building, which proved lucky for us. The tornado quickly ripped off the roof of the apartment, forcing the folks on the top floor to evacuate. The people on the next floor down had to stay with us for a number of days because rain had flooded their third floor rooms. A huge and beautiful old oak tree near the parking area was literally ripped in half. Oddly, it didn't fall and didn't even die. A few cars were overturned, some had their windows blown out, house windows were smashed, and all along the residential streets, trees had been toppled, as had street signs and telephone poles. Leaves that had been arduously raked and piled along the gutters had been blown helter-skelter and now covered everything. Roads, sidewalks, lawns, parks. More ominously, they hid the downed power lines. For days after... After the storm, parents walked their children to school to make sure they didn't touch or step on the lines, many of which were still alive. Though there was a great deal of damage to roofs, trees, cars, and the occasional house trailer, Hoopston fortunately survived its tornadoes with no deaths. But the repairs and rebuilding were monumental for a small community and took until the next autumn to really be completed. Many hundreds of people were dislocated and had to live with friends or in temporary quarters throughout the winter, and a number of the small shops and stores in Hoopstons downtown were financially harmed for quite some time. And all that was the result of only a Category F1 tornado. I shudder when I see what an F4-5 tornado of this weekend has wrought for the town and people of Washington and surrounding areas. They will rebuild, of course, and erase the swath of wrecked homes and broken buildings. But they'll never erase the tornado's effects on their lives. That is nature's legacy. This is Gina Wickwar.
0: Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan. KUSK-HD1-88.5 Vernal, KUSL-HD1-89.3 Richfield, KUST-HD1-88.7 Moab, and KUSU-FM-HD1-91.5 Logan.
2: This Week in This American Life. Yes, I'm looking for a one-bedroom apartment for me and my wife. Yes, uh huh. Have you possibly looked for a place to live lately? It's unpleasant, right? I don't have nothing. You don't have anything? Okay, actually, that's a lie. The guy has places. The secret to get past him and others revealed
0: this week. Sundays at 2.